0: If you can find one spot in the economy where you can excel, you really don't need anything else. You really don't need to be a generalist, which knows just a little bit about everything. You can be a specialist.
1: Welcome to Passive Wealth Strategies for Busy Professionals, the show that teaches you and other busy pros how to grow your wealth so you can live life on your own terms. I'm your host, Taylor Lowe. Our guest today is Lior Gantz. Lior's father went bankrupt three times by the time Lior was 22. At 32, Lior became a millionaire without going to any formal education, like a college or anything like that. And he's done that through starting and investing in businesses. His story includes failing and recovering seven days of effort for many years books that he read to guide the way, an approach to global investing, traveling 365 days a year with his family, and so much more. He has a global approach to life and business. And that's where the name originates from, the name of his business. Over the past 18 years, Lior has built, run, and managed various exciting ventures across two continents. And we're speaking right now, I'm in Richmond, Virginia, and he is in New Zealand. So that's pretty awesome. With his wealth research group, Leor provides a glimpse into his inner thoughts and his work processes so loyal members get to grow and expand their financial expertise along with him. His drive to consistently outperform the markets with an elevated degree of safety on one end and his commitment to seek out and find the most explosive under the radar opportunities on the other end will be clear to you with every word you read of what he writes and spells out. So, Lior, thank you for joining our team and joining our tribe today.
0: Hey, thanks for having me. That's the best bio I've ever heard about myself.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad I worked for you. So you write about a number of different asset types and something we haven't touched on this show yet in general with any other guests are precious metals. I own a little bit of gold myself, not a whole lot, a little bit. Why should someone maybe in my position or perhaps in the listener's position consider having precious metals as a part of their portfolio?
0: So that's a great question. And you know, what's funny about it is when I started investing, I was 16. What happened was at 13, I started having jobs just because I wanted things and my parents couldn't afford things. So I started working. I painted decks and I babysat. I coached basketball to the kids in the neighborhood, to the small ones, like the six-year-olds and whatever I can do, right? So I save up like 20 grand and in today's money, right? It's 1997. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, what do I do with this? It can't just sit there, right? And I ask the banker, What do you do with money? And he says you need to invest it. You put in mutual funds, blah, blah. He's a banker, right? So he gives me his spiel, right? His sales pitch. I say, okay, what do I need to do to get going? And he says, okay, get a waiver. Get your parents to sign a waiver, and you can manage this account on your own. And so that's what I did. Now the first book I ever read about investments, my grandfather gave it to me, and was a book by Warren Buffett. Buffett, every chance he gets. He bashes gold, right? He talks about the fact that gold is not cash-flowing investment. If you put an ounce in your pocket today, it will be an ounce 70 years from now. It doesn't grow. It's not dynamic. It's not a vibrant business. And therefore, it's it's not a wealth creator. And that is so true. But you don't need to compare gold with real estate or with dividend stocks or with anything that generates cash flow or that grows. The apples to apples comparison is with fiat currencies, with your savings. So, for example, if you want to look at even Warren Buffett, even the master investor, right, the greatest one, if he would have taken Berkshire's cash, just the cash on hand, and instead of just holding $100 billion in cash, he would have allocated 5 to 10% out of it into holding it in precious metals, that money would have compounded better in terms of the purchasing power for Berkshire's shareholders in the past 18 years. Than being in cash. In other words, from the year 2000, if you look at the price of gold, for example, 250 dollars an ounce. Today it's at 1230. As we're doing this interview, probably it's going to be less or more by the time we choose released. But look, the idea is simple: gold and silver are forms of cash. Form is a very liquid cash because you can liquidate your gold or silver holdings at any time. And they're not to be mistaken with wealth creating opportunities because they're not. They are on a regular day to day basis is a way to diversify out of fiat currencies and just keep some of your savings in other forms of assets. Now, in terms of emergencies in times of real crisis in economies like Venezuela or what we've seen in Turkey or in other countries over the past five, six years, for people who have held their savings in gold and not in their local currencies over there, that thing has been a lifesaver because the purchasing power of their currencies have gone down substantially. So sort of a wears two hats on a regular basis in a place like America, where you haven't seen rampant inflation except for the 1970s, you haven't seen inflation as a general problem. Holding gold is simply a way to diversify a little bit outside of the US dollar and just have your savings in some other form. And if you are an international investor and you want exposure to other markets then having gold in those other markets will actually help you in terms of purchasing power. So in other words, in Turkey right now, you can buy prime real estate in Istanbul, one of the most touristic cities in the world. And if you have held your Turkish liras, if you've converted them to gold, then you can buy far more real estate right now and convert it back and buy a cash flowing asset than people that have saved their money inside of banks. Now, I'm not saying have everything outside of the bank and put into gold, but there is a place for it. So that's kind of where the idea comes from. And in general, what I do, John, is I take 24 months of living expenses and I converted them to gold and silver. So in other words, I took my lifestyle burn rate and I just converted it into two years worth of expenses and put that in gold and silver storage. If I want to, on top of that, speculate and say, okay, the price is going to go higher for some reason. I can do that. But at least I know aside from everything, I have that as a cushion. And that's kind of where my mindset is at with that. Now, we did create for your listeners, because I know you have a very sophisticated audience. You can go to wealthresearchgroup.com forward slash gold playbook. And we wrote the most extensive gold manual and gold stocks manual online that I'm aware of. It's in two parts and you can really access it and get a real good idea of how this industry works.
1: And I like that you brought up purchasing power of fiat currencies. It reminds me of a meme that I saw just today for the first time. It's a picture of Ben Bernanke, and it reads, what has less value than a penny? At the bottom, it says that same penny tomorrow. Now, obviously not the copper in the penny. But the fiat currencies that we pretty much all of us hold in one form or another, whether U.S. dollars or the Turkish lira, like you mentioned, they're all massively depreciating assets, and not just that they don't produce cash flow, but there's constantly more supply. That's what central banks exist to do is just pump cash into the system and inflate the currency and reduce the purchasing power of the dollar or whatever your fiat currency of choice might be. So I love that you brought that up. and. Yeah,
0: The thing is this, that if you look at the US federal government as a corporation and not a government, its expenses exceeds its income. And therefore, it's it's not always in a deficit, but at least in the last 35 years, it's in a deficit and it's creating mountains of debt. Now, as opposed to a corporation that in order to pay off the debt, it must do something creative and generate more income than outgoing expenses. It need to cut the expenses at some point. Otherwise, the creditors won't lend it money. The United States government has exit strategy, which is different. They can monetize debt by approaching the central bank and the central bank can actually issue currency, new currency in order to buy more debt from the U.S. government. In other words, this would be the same as you coming to me and saying, Leo, Hey, I need, uh, I need a million dollars. And I would say, okay, create a bond that says that you owe me a million dollars. I'll create a million dollars and then I'll give them to you. You'll give me the bond. That is how exceptional and unique the Central Bank of America, specifically of America, is because it can do that. And not only can it do that, but the government can sell this bond to foreign investors. So this is very unique. And it has given the U.S. the power to continue to mount up on debt that no other country can sustain. No other country can live with a $22 trillion federal budget, federal debt a $1 trillion a year federal deficit. And so at one point or another, you're going to see a situation where the U.S. dollar will have some sort of an event where the paradigm shifts around it and its value will go down substantially. And the reason is that currently, all countries are using the U.S. dollar as sort of a reserve currency. Six out of every 10 currency units in the world are U.S. dollars. That's 60% of the world's currency, that's U.S. dollars. And so it has a demand that is artificial because other countries are basically using it as a form of international settlement, but there are alternatives to that in, in the future. This could be 20 years ahead, so this is not an imminent, immediate event, but it could be five years away, you just don't know. And that is why you need some protection. In terms of a monetary system, we have had these changes in the reserve currency of the world every 70 years, give or take. So an economy or a country enjoys a prosperity period, a boom, a huge boom, and its currency is being relied on for international affairs. You saw that with Portugal, Netherlands, France, then most recently with Great Britain. Then after World War II, this has been the US dollar. Now, obviously, the world didn't accept U.S. dollars the way it did today back then. So in 1944, when the nations met in order to create a new currency system, they actually backed the dollar with gold. So $35 were worth one ounce. And that was a constant ratio. In other words, if the U.S. needed to create more currency, it needed to own more gold at the same time to retain this exchange ratio of 35 to one. And then they went out to war in Korea, and then they went out to war in, in Vietnam, And other countries were beginning to become suspicious of how much gold is actually there to back the dollars. And could it be that it's not 35 to one anymore? In other words, has Washington diluted the power of the dollar without telling anyone? And so especially Charles Gaulle, who was the president of France in the late 60s, was saying, hey, I want an audit. I want to see how much gold you have. And let's compare that to the amount of dollars, see that it's 35 to one. And Nixon, instead of doing the audit, he said, okay, let's temporarily create a situation where gold is not tied to the dollar. That was 1971, actually, the 15th of August, 1971. It's called the Nixon shock or the closing of the gold window. And from there on, all currencies are essentially not backed by any tangible asset. You can't redeem them for any tangible thing, they have a changing and a flowing liquid value as compared to other things. And that has allowed governments to get into debt because they create more and more of it. And by law, we are all obligated to accept it. It has this sort of network effect, which in real life, if somebody was just to come from out of space and receive this dollar, he would say, okay, what do I do with this piece of paper? Why does a $50 bill has any other significance than a $100 bill? Who says so? So this is sort of the paradox that we live in, in terms of fiat currencies. It doesn't mean that this will all have to end tomorrow, right? But having sort of a parachute plan, a plan B in case of the US dollar going down by 20 or 30%, which would be very detrimental to your purchasing power, you should definitely think about ways of protecting yourself. So gold would be just one one of these, but real estate has been a very good inflation hedge. Some particular dividend companies are very good hedges because they can raise prices on their products to meet inflation. In other words, if you remember the price of a can of Coke back in the 80s, it's not the price today. And still no one has said, hey, man, that's too expensive for a piece of Coke. I'm going to change my beverages. So some companies are able to keep raising prices on consumers without losing what they have. And so those sort of companies are also very good inflation hedges.
1: Absolutely. And long term real estate, you, know, you mentioned real estate. Real estate's proven to be one of the best wealth creation and preservation devices out there for hundreds of years. It's created more millionaires and billionaires than anything else. So I absolutely agree. You know, real estate should be a big part of our holdings, properly acquired real estate, but real estate nonetheless. Now, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. Lior, what is the best investment you've ever made?
0: I'll give you two. So one is real life investment. And the other one is sort of a sophisticated answer to your question. So I think the most important thing for me, what happened is I started reading a lot of books. And I realized that there's a lot of wealth and a lot of great information in the bookstore for next to nothing in terms of the price. And I became a very avid reader very early on. So by the time I was nineteen, 20, I've read like hundreds of books about investments and entrepreneurship. And I think that really helped me to take my life in a different direction. And I think that can happen to anyone. But I got to tell you, John, I probably read three to four hours a day for the first four years that I read. So put together, I think I read about 6,000 hours worth of wealth material between the years of when I was 16 and 20. And that continued throughout my 20s. And I sacrificed a lot of other things, right? If you read three, four hours a day, that means you're not doing other stuff. And I think this is one of the things that's important to understand. With regards to today's America in particular, the U.S. enjoyed this very big boom after World War II because the rest of the world was decimated and the U.S. wasn't. And so the rest of the world was turning to the U.S. as a manufacturing hub, as a services hub, as everything. This was the only game in town. But this is not the world right now. And the future for America's middle class and for their upper class and lower classes is not guaranteed at all. The infrastructure in the US is the best, the business environment is the best. In terms of where the mother load is, the US is it. But it doesn't mean that the money will be spread across the citizenry in a very equal way. You can see very much what today's America would be like by looking at Amazon, where the founder is worth $140 billion in 20 years' time, and the minimum wage was just raised to 15 bucks an hour. So this is where America is going. America is a very specialized economy, and you're going to see people popping up as billionaires and multimillionaires, but you're going to see a huge, a huge demographic group that is minimum wage, unless they change their future. And I think that has to sink in. So the sacrifices that need to be made in order to make big money are enormous. And it's just something that I think listeners should really pay attention to. The fact that it's going to take a huge sacrifice to become rich, but the opportunity today to make money is better than at any other point in history. It's all there. The opportunities are incredible, but it takes just enormous effort, almost endless. And that's a big part of investing in yourself, which is what is the best investment I ever made? And I think the answer is investing in myself in a way that's non-compromising, just a lot of hours. At least in my case, I came from a house where my father went bankrupt three times in business. And I still decided to go into business. And that took a lot of brainwashing to wash my head out of negative ideas and put other constructive ones in my head in order to make this work. And it didn't work in the beginning. I've had failed businesses in my life. So I think that's the sophisticated answer. In terms of the best material investment that I ever made, I've invested in companies that have gone up twenty fold and thirty fold. I've invested in cryptocurrencies last year, twenty seventeen, wealth research group, the free financial newsletter, basically the company that I run and I published the information. We covered cryptocurrencies very early on. Just to give you an example, we covered a coin named Ethereum, which is the second largest coin in the world at when it was twelve bucks. And in six months it was over a thousand dollars. So a lot of subscribers that bought it made 90 times their money. And we did that with Monero and Dash and Litecoin, and a, a lot of these small coins that became big opportunities. And that's sort of what's unique about Wealth Research Group, the newsletter, is I share my own ideas in the letter. So it's not just generic and current events and news. It's also specific opportunities that I have. And every two months, I release the full portfolio, my own portfolio what I'm doing with it, and what's going on in terms of my own life. It's sort of a way for me to transfer my mind into the page.
1: Cool. I look forward to checking that out. How about what is the worst investment you've ever made?
0: I've had investments go to zero. So in other words, the biggest obstacle investing is what's called a permanent loss. So there are many companies that you would buy, that you would invest in, and the day you bought them is not the day that buyers and sellers decided would be the lowest point. So with every second investment that I've ever made, the price I paid was not the lowest price. And you can go back and and look at the portfolio for 20 years and you would see, hey, he bought Procter & Gamble for 60 bucks. It then went down to 54. It's now 90, whatever, right? So there's a period for almost any investment that you make where it would be down. And that's fine. And that's part of investing because what you're doing as an investor is not trying to find the bottom but you're trying to find value. Now, if there's a situation where you found value and then somebody else, another seller, has decided to sell and be rational and sell something of value for a very cheap price, you have a situation where you can buy more of that. And that's called position sizing and dollar cost averaging. You can decide on the amount of money that you want to put into a given investment and then split that into three or four increments and allow time to work in your favor. Now, if if the stock goes up, then what you do is you don't invest the amount that you set up to to do. So you actually put less into it than you originally thought, but hey, the price has gone up, right? On the flip side, you can have a stock keep going down and you can buy more and more of it. The idea of buying a stock is to own that business. You want to own more and more of that business because you believe that there's real value in it. Over the long term, price will come back because there's value. And so what you don't want is what's called a permanent loss, which is a situation where a company had a lot of its future riding on one event. And if that event did not transpire, then there is no value in the company or there's very little value in the company. But if that event happened, then that would be a game changer. So in these sort of situations where it's a speculation, it's a real big speculation. And that's something that I do also with the portfolio because you can see some game changing turns. That can hamper your portfolio. Now, what you do is to mitigate that is you only put 1% of your net worth in such an idea so that if it goes to zero, if you're not careful and it goes to zero, you still lose just $1 out of every $100 that you're worth. And that is something that you're willing to take a chance on because on the flip side, that company could have turned into a 10 bagger, which is... A company that goes up a thousand percent and that one dollar would be turned into ten dollars so that's sort of a a risk return ratio risk reward ratio is something that i'm willing to do when i find something that's very compelling Uh, but i've had in my life situations where the companies have essentially went to zero not actually zero but you know you lost 60 or 70 percent of your initial investment that's that can happen when you speculate in small caps
1: Mm, wow That's a pretty big loss when you lose that big of a percent.
0: If you are going to speculate, if you are going to do that, you know, if you look at a portfolio that's worth a million dollars and you put $10,000 into something and it goes to $5,000 and you sell the loss, then you lost $5,000 out of a $1 million portfolio. It doesn't create a situation where you have any catastrophic losses. It doesn't change your lifestyle and it doesn't change your psyche. It doesn't leave residue in there that's like a mental scar. So that's important to remember. Now, on the flip side, if you do two or three or five or six of these and this happens to you, then you probably shouldn't be in the small cap sector. Now, if you do 10 of them and one does that and the rest are big winners, then that's the price you pay for speculating. But overall, that portfolio has gone up big time. And so it's just important to look at this in the bigger picture. If you are able to find management teams and find leaders of small companies, when I say small, is like 50 to 100 to $200 million companies, and you find them before their growth curve is going exponential, then you got a great strategy there. And, but some of them, hey, it, it might not pan out. But if you have, if you put $1,000 into each or $10,000 into each and you have six of them, and five of them go up double so you have five of them going from 50 to a hundred thousand dollars and just one losing five grand overall you're up ninety five thousand dollars, which is incredible so you got to remember you're not going to have a perfect batting average but you don't need to have that if you have one company go up such and such percent and the other ones you you hit your stop loss
1: Mm, got it what is the most important lesson you've learned in investing
0: I think that in order to really make it in investments, you really have to find a little nuke, a little niche that you can specialize in and forget about everything else. In other words, if you're John and you're an expert on real estate in this neighborhood, just stick in that neighborhood. You don't need to find opportunities somewhere else. There's enough opportunity in your own neighborhood or in your own city that you know you don't need to get exotic. And I think that's important. If you go to wealthresearchgroupcom forward slash top, you would find a wealth library of download reports that we've created over the years on many topics that, that are very important for investors. And that's what I think is the key. If you can find one spot in the economy where you can excel, you really don't need anything else. You really don't need to be a generalist, which knows just a little bit about everything. You can be a specialist. But if you are a busy professional, like you said, and this is a show for busy professionals, I don't think there's anything wrong with putting you know, your investment portfolio in the S&P 500 or in the Dow Jones long term. Because for most people, for 90% of the people, doing that is the rational thing to do. The S and P 500 has returned 7.6 percent a year going back to its inception, going back to 1812, 200 six years ago. Putting one dollar in American businesses would be worth over seven hundred thousand dollars today. One dollar would be worth over seven hundred thousand dollars today. Putting one dollar into T bonds or loaning the, the government money would be worth about sixty k, and putting that same dollar in gold would be worth about $4. The enormous, enormous power of the enterprise system in America, of America's ability to grow more and more businesses and entrepreneurs the size of Apple and Amazon and Google and the rest of the big ones. And we're talking about a machine that has created so much wealth that even if you do not become an expert on stocks or in real estate, etc., the general economy is so good that you can double your money in about every eight years just by buying an index fund. And so I think the most important lesson, John, is to understand that investments are sort of secondary in life to your main career. Because if you have, say, ten to $20,000 and that doubles every eight years, that is not a lot of money uh, in the bigger picture. 20 grand will become 40 grand, then 80 grand, 160. By the time you're retired, you'll have much less than a million dollars if you start with $10,000, right? So the idea is to have more initial money coming in. And that's where investing in yourself, making yourself a more skillful person, a more valuable person to your employer or in your business, that is why I think that is the number one thing. That's the most important thing that you can do.
1: Mm, I totally agree with that. Yeah, raising that top line revenue on your personal balance sheet, bringing more money in uh, by investing in yourself and making yourself more valuable. Totally agree with that. So you've mentioned your resources that you offer. What is the best way for folks to get in touch with you and to follow up?
0: The best thing to do is, look, the newsletter is simply my way of sharing exactly what's going on with my own life, with my own investments, with everything that's going on in the general economy. So if you hit the website you go to the homepage and, and you subscribe to the newsletter, you're basically getting the best way to to get into my mind. And that's sort of what Wealth Research is is all about. When I started the newsletter and at the end of uh, 2015, the, the beginning of 2016, the idea was, hey, there's so much lack of financial education out there. I don't know if it's deliberate or not. Many people think that, hey, the government is trying to keep people away from financial education on purpose. But, you know, who knows? The bottom line is that I think most people could use a lot of financial education, but since they're busy, like you say, and they have their own lives and and all that kind of stuff, the newsletter, what it does is it encapsulates ideas that I spend hours and days and weeks and months looking at and encapsulates them into articles that are published three times a week.
1: Great, I love it. It's a great resource, and definitely everyone should check it out and and look you up online. For everyone out there listening, I really hope you learned a lot today, and I hope you'll follow up with Leor and uh, sign up for his newsletter. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe wherever you get your podcast, iTunes, and what have you. If you know anyone in your life that could use this advice, as far as opportunities to grow their wealth grow their income and live life on their own terms please bring them in share a link with them send them the podcast bring them into the fold till next time i hope you enjoy the show i'm your host taylor loat have a good one